there's something really exciting about bringing people who are different together and celebrating what that can do dramatically. There's work to do still in our language and how we pick up our tongues to talk about those crosshairs. Uh, we're way more connected than we are separate. Most audience members don't realize that when they buy that ticket, it's only paying for about 40% of the cost of making that work. We're trying to make sure at every turn you're creating a human connection with the people we're putting you in front of. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, the world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. Our podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. On today's episode, we're talking to Gabriel Stillian Shanks and Nylan about their work with the Drama League. Gabriel Stillian Shanks and Nylan are the Artistic Director and Associate Artistic Director, respectively, of the Drama League, the renowned non-profit home for stage and film directors in New York City. But their partnership goes even further. As award-winning producers, writers, directors and performers, they also founded in 2016 the acclaimed production company A Certain Something, where they have collaborated on over a dozen film, television and theatre projects over the last decade. They are currently at work on their next television series in development, The Recipe, and co-host the Drama League's own podcast, Talking Direction. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yay. Lovely. I'm so excited. Thank you. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about the Drama League for those. We have a global audience, so not everybody knows what the Drama League is and what they do. Sure. Well, the Drama League is about to start its 107th season. It was founded in 1916, really by many of the immigrants who came to the United States from Europe primarily, who wanted to recreate the theater culture that they had enjoyed there. And so it's a service organization. It's not a producing entity. And it now supports artists as they're developing their career. And then in 1982, it decided to focus exclusively on directors, um, who are the artists that are sort of at the center of collaborative processes in live performance. And that's primarily because they don't have a lot of support in the United States. Those programs have been very successful. About a third of the shows on Broadway every year are directed by alumni of the Drama League. And that you can find them running theater companies across the world. You can find them uh, in film and television. Anyone who wants to know more about it can visit dramalead.org. But it's a, it's a wonderful service organization. And Nylan, how did you get involved in it? <laughs> the Drama League definitely took care of me in terms of I came across their programming. Um, I also was brought in by this good man here <laughs> that I was talking with on the chat. And I really got to see um, firsthand the work they're doing. I'm watching this organization try to rebuild who is working in the room, who has the power. And they're doing a very good job, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So do you guys, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourselves? And then we we can dig in into a little bit of the work you're doing with the Drama League. Nylon? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm a, uh, a, a playwright, an actor. Um, I direct some, I produce, obviously. I co-collaborate with Gabriel a whole lot as we have a production company together called A Certain Something. That's where we focus um, usually on intersectional storytelling. We both work internationally and nationally. I try to make time for it as much as possible. <laughs> and we also take care of the drama league. Yeah. I uh, self-define Anna primarily as a director of theater and television, but I'm also a writer and a producer. You know, I think a lot of artists now are, are embracing their fullness and all the hyphens that they can put in their work. And an arts leader and an artistic director. I have primarily worked the in theater, the experimental side of the street, but met Nylon a decade ago. And we really connected over what he was saying of, of the power that lies in trying to tell stories intersectionally, which is really trying to bring the fullness of a, of a human being into 
the story and have that propel the narrative. So we're not only one thing, you know, I'm not only cisgendered and male, but I'm also from the Southern United States. I'm also a uh, queer man. I'm also uh, a man of a certain generation. So, you know, how do we bring the totality of a character into the story and have those bump up against people who are different than them. And so all of our writing and our directing and producing kind of lean into that idea that there's something really exciting about bringing people who are different together and celebrating what that can do dramatically. I love that. And especially because a a lot of the talk over the closures of the pandemic was about, I guess, underrepresented stories in terms of certain demographics and and and, and groups, uh, minorities of people. But I love the fact that even in those minorities, there's a diversity in that one character, right? There's lots of ways in which that person manifests and everybody has a story. How's that translated on stage? Do you do that through a combination of, I mean, as directors, you do it and actors, is that through fleshing out those characters and making sure it's represented in the show? Is it... Is it a backstory? Is it how, do, how does that actively get represented on stage, the depth and breadth of a character? Well, it, it comes in a variety of ways. It comes first in the, in the sort of writing and dreaming and brainstorming to just sort of make sure that's present in those creative conversations at the earliest stages, knowing that's what we're wanting to talk about. Then making sure that when you're in the developmental rooms, in the rehearsal rooms, in production, when you're bringing in your designers or working with your casting directors. And we do this at the Drama League too. We really want to make sure there's a multiplicity of voices present and that we create an environment where they can be heard, where they can contribute to the storytelling. I love the phrase that my grandmother used to say, things get interesting when you trouble the water, which is you know an old Southern phrase about making things complicated, making things sophisticated, making things interesting. And if you bring the fullness of the people in the room, it kind of automatically happens. It gets really exciting. Uh, that's how it feels to me, Nyland. What about you? Yeah, I want to say that it's 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 making always making the the conscious to- choice to to excavate a thought. Sometimes you, we make a decision. I make a decision because I'm six six in the world, right? Has nothing to do with my race, <laughs> my sexuality. It's all about my body has to move through space, and I'm making this choice on um, based on my height, right? And we we try to bring that forward because if you notice what people are saying, especially people that like visually are different than you, majority of the time I would say they probably aren't coming from positions of race. Or, or sexuality. They're, I mean, they're 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 making decisions based on class. They're making decisions based on the comforts of their bodies. Uh, my knees. I don't want to walk up those stairs, right? Um, or or people. They're watching people navigate space and then choose when when making a decision based on race or sexuality or gender helps them. And we try to show those things off as tools, as as factors in how we build conscious communication. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you bring up your height. We're we're on an international podcast, so I actually don't know how many centimeters tall you are, but for all the listeners, he's really tall. I am a giant. Um, and <laughs> if you, you know, as an actor, Nylon may be in an audition where he is auditioning for a leading role, but the actress they're planning to cast is much shorter than him. And it doesn't matter how talented he is if all you're looking for is a height differential. But in our stories, you know, Nylon often has to duck down to get through a door. And we think that's interesting visually. We think that's interesting theatrically. We want, we want to bring the totality of that to the storytelling. So often when people see our work, they're not used to without even sort of consciously realizing that they're not used to dealing with what we're trying to put out, which is a full picture of the way humanity exists. Yeah, breaking of a standardization expectation, I guess, of, you know, people who are in a relationship of a similar height, right? Maybe that's not the case in this situation. I find that really interesting because the way that you're breaking down a character is sometimes how I, when I work globally, I try to look to understand the people that I'm working with, um, if, especially if I'm working in a new culture, what is it? What's their triggers? What's their motivations? What is it? How can I work with them to get the best out of them? 
given the time and the circumstances in which I'm working in. So in a way, I'm kind of doing a character breakdown, not for a performance, but more to understand how I can connect with them. And um, we spoke, Gabriel, last time about doing that across, you know, doing that across cultures. And and I guess yeah. that's one thing to do it in America. But And then when you're going to flesh out, does it become even more complex when you're doing that overseas, when you're doing it with different cultures? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we've been very blessed to work internationally a lot. Nylon has worked extensively in Germany. I've worked in the UK and had plays of mine done in South America and Japan. And and then through a program that the Drama League has, we've spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, uh, specifically in Bulgaria and Romania. Uh, the story I'll tell is we took a, a famous American director to Sofia, Bulgaria, to work with actors from the National Theater there. And the relationship America has to time is very different. Theater is very expensive here. And so chunks of rehearsal can be broken down into sort of we're going to spend 17 minutes on this and then we're going to take a three minute break and then we're going to do. But the economic system of theater in Bulgaria, where it is state supported is is much more relaxed and they may rehearse a play for months they may they rehearse it until it's ready and i remember this american director and i showing up for rehearsal on time ready to go the way americans charge through like bowls through everything and no one was there when it started (laughs) and then they started to drift in with their coffee And then they went outside and had a cigarette because everyone smokes in Bulgaria. And then, you know, and this American director lost their mind, Anna. It was just that they couldn't realize that we were in a different culture. (laughs) And, And I had to spend some time saying, hey, this is a different way of working. This is the way that they come to the creative process. And we had to modulate inside that. You know, that's a process conversation. And then I think when you add intersectionality into it, when, uh, I mean, I am tall too, not as tall as Nylon, but we are taller than most people. So when we come into space or that we are of two different races, and especially in, in when we're working interculturally, that is a, 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 a common American experience. It is not a common experiment across the world. We have to come to these conversations differently. I will tell you that in some countries, I have been there a week and I have tried to count the people of color. And I, in some countries, don't need more than five fingers. And so for, you know, a company that works with a lot of Black, Indigenous people of color in America and brings them to Europe through the Drama League, there's an added level of work, right? Because for the first time ever, they are often they are encountering a culture that is not a monoculture in terms of race. It isn't even just in the rehearsal room. It's sometimes just how we get from the hotel to the theater. There is an encountering of a different culture that informs the work. Wow. Mm -hmm. And how's that for you, Nalan? Yeah, I I would say it's funny because Gabriel brought up the monoculture. And I remember my first time over in Europe and I love Europe so much. (laughs) And I remember lovely woman who's now a friend of mine. I remember when she stepped up to me and she asked if I was a basketball player because what she got on TV was (laughs) a a clip of really tall black men. And she thought, you know, tall black men play basketball. And I was like, I didn't take offense to it. And I realized like, oh, this, I I think I'm the first one you've seen like in person. Um, No, I'm not. (laughs) That's not what I do. But going back to our work with intersectionality, it's also, it's also a way for us to stop being lazy with our tongues, right? We love, and and, and I just, I I didn't want to say it's just American. I just want to say people love to categorize things. People love to put labels on things. People love their pretty little boxes, right? And I think sometimes we run with those pretty little boxes and we forget just how, I don't want to say complex, I want to say intricate life is. And looking at all those cross sections um, really gives a chance to connect in a more visceral and, and human way. And we need we need more of that in the world right now. You're right. We went through this entire good old 2020 (laughs) we still are digesting whatever that is right and we're still in the (laughs) pandemic at large but we went through like i would say a good height of it and we decided to fight over our pretty little boxes and i'm not saying we didn't need to fight over those but there's work to do still 
and our language and how we pick up our tongues to talk about those crosshairs. Uh, we're way more connected than we are separate. And that's the job of artists, right? Is to find the connections, is to find the ways that stuff works. And so I think a lot of our work at the Drama League and a lot of our artistic work personally is really driven by saying, can we come to this conversation with respect for the complexity of any single human being? Can we recognize their fullness and put them in situations where that fullness can be seen by the viewer, by the audience? Because I think it's really the important conversation of our time. How do we reach across our differences? How do we go from a place where the differences may be impeding communication or impeding understanding to a place where we're actually celebrating the fact that we're different? It's really exciting that we've got four people on this podcast right now who are so radically different. It's a really interesting conversation because of what the four of us bring to it, right? If there were four people that looked just like me that had exactly my experience, we wouldn't be having the same conversation. Um, so how do, we, how do we get more of that in our art and in our life, I think is, is sort of the, the mission of what we do. Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful mission. And I think just, like you said, just to ignite that in, in the individual, in the audience's mind, in the individual's mind when they walk out. I mean, isn't that the beauty of theatre in its essence anyway, to walk away and have something that you take with it? Even if it is a beautiful musical or a beautiful story or whatever, generally there's some kind of underlying nuances and messages that, you, that make, pe- make you see the world in a different way. And that's, I think that's why we're often drawn to it even uh, from no other, no matter what culture that we're in. I mean, how's that experience for you, Anna? You know, you're living in America, but you're from Mexico. Americans on labels. It is a thing. It really is a thing. Mm-hmm. And I was really, when Gabriel was ta- talking about embracing the fullness of who you are and the richness of who you are, I think that's so important. Like, you're not the one thing. You are not this section of, yourself you are everything that comes or at least that's how i feel as you guys were talking i have a compound question uh how do you bring people that are going to fund the project on board and then how do the audiences take this because a lot of what's been happening in the united states pre-pandemic and pre all those conversations you're already doing this work but a lot is driven by a certain group of people that consume and fund the arts. And so if we want to bring a different story, we need them to accept this different kind of stories. So yeah, we know there are in America, since we're not state funded, um, and I say that going, maybe we should be. <laughs> maybe the government should care about the arts. <laughs> um, just going to put that out there. Uh, <laughs> that there are a lot of independent funders, and there's a lot of um, funding organizations, and then then our audiences themselves, right? We we care a lot about a ticket price <laughs> because it keeps us going. There's multiple sides of this conversation. One, I'm going to say something independently funded, right? We're watching artists um, put their own money or their own wealth um, into their art to for it to be able to become fruition, right? That's a model that's out there. That's a model that usually can only be done by the wealthy. <laughs> you and your credit card, go for it. I wish I had it. <laughs> um, <laughs> then there's this model of the funders of the world, right? And applying for a grant to get a certain amount of money to do a project, right? And And there is a culture where we have seen those who are getting those grants reinforce a certain type of art at large, right? And how do we start the shift? That has been the bigger question. A lot of that is that we're starting noticing funders um, require, like the money has to go towards a certain thing, right? This money goes towards projects supporting women. This money goes towards uh, Black bodies or Latin bodies, Asian bodies. This money goes towards disabled bodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I, and I'm going to speak in the I, <laughs> as this gets a little tricky, I believe there's one is that maybe those money, maybe that money shouldn't go to what I call a blanket organization, an organization that does it all. Maybe it should goes to racially specific organizations or, or organizations that are solely helping people with disabilities first. Um, so they get their bit out of the pot first. One, because I think we have to uplift those smaller theaters who are trying to focus um, on hyper smaller communities, right? 
um, and maybe take their lead of the bigger institution of co-producing with that person so that you can bring this show to a larger audience. Then it's how we train our audiences, right? So those funders or those theaters that are making the art, I think the next step we have to do is figuring out how to, at large, get people different than the audiences they have now. I think it's like raising a new audience. How do you teach new people to see theater? How do you teach people that aren't already coming to the theater how to see it? And I think a lot of that is how do we get back to work that has a one-to-one relationship with the community? How do we get back into the streets, start saying hello to people, right? And make them feel welcome in these spaces. I'm not calling us a church. I'm not saying come (laughs) to get the gospel of theater today. What I am saying (laughs) is that people need to know that they can, one, people need to know that they can come and people need to know that they can relate to what's there. And I, I think we've lost that work I think we've we've we depend on social media now to sell art, right? We we depend on a fancy billboard and some word of mouth, right? But but we really I think have distanced ourselves further and further to the people who live around our theaters. And we have to figure that out relationship and fix it again. Absolutely right, Nyland. And I think as we expand our audiences, we've got to be transparent, Anna, with the way the sausage gets made in the arts, especially in the United States. It's a very different system. And I think most audience members don't realize that when they buy that ticket, it's only paying for about 40% of the cost of making that work. That a ticket does not pay for everything. And in order for people to make even above the poverty line, much less a, a livable, supportable wage, the rest of that gap has to be filled in with philanthropy. In America, what in other countries might be the government, because they have prioritized arts as part of civilization, does it, uh, there is the National Endowments for the Arts here, but it is it is minuscule, and so we rely on, frankly, the wealth class, on donors, on grant makers, on corporations, on rich people to cover the costs of the rest of it, and when you do that, work gets made with those people in mind as opposed to our communities. And so there's, uh, I mean, we love our donors. So that, that I'm, I'm, I celebrate that in a culture like this, they are doing that work. But we do need them to uh, transparently start to transform the economics, to, to start thinking about something. And, and this is why I think so much of the work, people feel it doesn't respond to them, because it's not responding to them. It is responding to the funding structures of the creative industries in America. And for film and TV that can sort of live in the free economy, can can live in a capitalist structure, you know, you get Marvel movies. And, uh, you know, you get sort of large blockbusters, and that's great. But in theater, which is really only an event uh, until recently that happened in a room with live people, you can't scale that, right? There's there's only so much, you know, and so we're looking at the $400 ticket for Hamilton as being an extreme of uh, having really priced out most of the American citizens. What's exciting to me in this moment as we come out of the pandemic is that some of that is starting to shift. We're seeing theater be made online. We're seeing different economic models start to appear of how things start to get created. At a certain something, in the middle of the pandemic, before there was a vaccine, before anything, Nylon and I and our company made five short films, which we were able to do so much cheaper than we would have been able to do it even five years before because equipment has started to be priced in a way that average people can can have it. The technology is being shared. And so that's exciting is that what used to cost $100,000 or $200,000 to make a, a five to 10 minute short film can now be done for like a 20th of that if you if you want to. So it's starting to shift on a, a little bit. It's getting exciting in this conversation about how we fund the arts in America, but we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. I agree. I just wanted to uh, ask a question, follow-up question. When you talk about economic models shifting, are you talking about prices going down in many, in like the supply chain and production chain, or is it really 
how we distribute the resources and where the resources are coming from that is shifting? I think it's both those things and a lot of other things. I think it's a very complicated conversation to have, right? But it's a really necessary one. I think that if the wealth class really could be brought on board, if our foundations could be brought on board, they could subsidize uh, to a deeper level tickets for the community who maybe can't afford them. There's a model in which that theater in particular could get a lot more equitable and accessible for people. But in our current system, that would require more support from the wealth class. But as Nyland said, what if we really thought of our theaters differently, not just as sort of these like closed off museums with the doors locked where you come in half an hour before and you sit in a chair and you see a show and then you leave. What if it's a community center? What if there are events during the day? What if we're having a a crisis about voting accessibility in the United States? What if every theater were a place where you could vote on voting day? What if our lobbies were open with coffee and tea where people could just come sit? What What if they could be public spaces like libraries are? Then I think people have a different relationship, right? And we start making different kinds of work. Yeah, there's something on a big stage that's happening, but we may also have smaller performances. We may also have music. We may also have dance. We may also have community-based projects that spring up. Yes to everything you said, Anna, but I think it's also more complicated. I think think we can have an even deeper interrogation of of these issues. What do you think, Nylon? One, I'm going to lift up because the type of theater you're talking about is the type of theater I would like to go to um, on a daily basis. I would love to interact with my theater, not when you have a performance. A- at majority of the time, I don't want to interact with you when you when you have a performance at large. I do. Like I that that should be an icing, like a cherry on top, and 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 I want to I want more substance. But what I'm going to say to your question, I don't think we're there yet, right? I think we are watching change. And or we're not watching change. And let me be very clear about that. We're, we're, we're going to see some people shift and we're going to see some people not shift. What I hope that happens, those people who aren't shifting, you stop getting that money. I hope that we are you're held accountable. You can see that you haven't been actionable and we start shifting where we're putting the money at. I think we have to, we, we, we have to lean into um, the people who are trying. And let me say, people are going to fail, right? I'd rather see a lot of open failure happening right now in the American theater because that means you learn something, right? Majority of the time, I mean, think about it. We, we, we take we take baby steps and we fall on our little knees until we learn how to, you know, support our bodies and walk. I need to see that. I need to see the theater again try a different way and not mimic each other. I think right now a lot of us are waiting and I say us because I'm a part of the American theater. So I won't even remove myself from this, (laughs) but I think a lot of theaters out there are waiting for that one theater to get it right and sound this big alarm and go, we did it. We're, we're equitable. We're, we're, (laughs) we, we're, we're just, we're inclusive. We're diverse. Yay. (laughs) Right. And I, and I think a lot of theaters are waiting to just mimic them. They just take exactly what they did, do a copy-paste, Control-C, <laughs> and just paste over here. And we can't wait for that, right? I, would, I, I, think, I think those those models that you're talking about, I'm watching artists decide I don't have to work insane hours anymore. I'm watching artists support that I don't have to be away from my kids. I'm watching artists decide why why are we holding our audiences? What if we allowed them in? Maybe maybe a more equitable step is uh, we all, who do we allow into our rehearsal rooms? What's precious about that moment? Or can can we use the 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 preview differently? Right? Like I mean, like and maybe those those prices since we're working on our feet should always be the most lowest. That way we're getting people um, in our community who can't afford it. in. I'm watching. When Gabriel brought up um, theater has moved online, that could be a beautiful step for us. That theater that you know can only hold 99 or 200 or 400 seats, right, are always going to be biased at some capacity because they just can't fit everybody. And the beauty about technology right now and that it can have a wider array of audiences. And yes, technology is still a, a limiter there because you have to have internet right or have the computer or phone to get the C right there right but it's it's a wider net 
yes, some people are going to fall through the net because that's just the truth about our country, right? We, we A lot of people need things. But if we don't start casting wider nets, we're never going to build, I think, what I, what, what I like to call a, a, a sustainable audience. We're never going to make that new generation come in. I know more people who fell in love with theater through someone telling them about a show they saw than people who have actually seen a show. And that still saddens me. I go, no, you haven't even had a chance like, to get in the room. I mean, and we, how do we police the rigor of our work, right? That's when someone falls in love with a bad show because they're just happy to be inside of the room. And I'm like, no, um, oh, gosh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And what I'm saying is I, I um, watch the people who are going to be actionable in that work, um, which I hope we are. And we should talk about some, some things that we have coming in the pipeline. But, uh, and watch the people who aren't also because what we have to stop doing is going to those people. They're going to keep doing it if we keep supporting them. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. And I think it's really interesting breaking apart that, I guess that it's also, I guess what you're saying is the institution of the way that we behave and working around theatre and trying to deconstruct that. I think from this perspective over here in Asia, there's such a lack of rules that it's kind of the opposite, you know, there is no, but in that freedom, I think there's such a, we did a show in, in, a, in a place called Macau, which is very small, seven miles long, seven miles wide, full of Cantonese people. And we had a bunch of people from all over the world performing a circus show. And it was really hard because you're just like, okay, well, there's nothing outside really for us to do. People are quite lonely in this small country. Um, they've got their families here. And, um, I started a, a thing called Baby Mondays because I was the first person to have uh, kids in the theatre. So everyone could bring their babies in on a Monday and they'd walk around the green room and stuff like that, which was fun. Then there was too many kids, so we had to stop that because it was getting a bit chaotic. But we used to do a, our dress rehearsals, which was like a just a, a full run without an audience. And that was the time when all of the wives and the, all the husbands who weren't working with the kids would come in and sit in the theatre and you'd have this little mini audience of children. And it didn't matter that they were loud because it was a dress rehearsal. And it was a really good sense of community. And I think breaking that stigma of what theatre is, because sometimes I'll go into other places where it would be, I brought a child into a theatre in Hong Kong and it was like, I, I think they looked at me like I, I don't know, like I brought a, a robot in or something. Like they were they were completely freaked out that I brought a child. But in my world, I'd set the tone and created a space where that was normal for me and normal for my children, right? Like they grew up in the circus. And so I love that idea. And I think the more that people do that, because we live it and it is our life, like you said, people don't want to work and not be away from their kids. But our work requires so many hours why not bring the kids into that environment I mean it's a great environment for them to learn if the company and the culture of that allows that and I know that many places are not there yet which is a shame but I wanted to go back because I think one of the other things I wanted to ask you because in all of that construct we spoke Gabrielle about like living wages and fair wages and when you're in this construct of not getting enough funding and the ticket price is not being high enough. A lot of people in the arts are not getting paid enough and you had to help throughout the pandemic people in in some situations that were in financial trouble, right? Yeah, you know, the Drama League for a century has been this organization. It's and I'm in my 20th year there and it it has been lovely. I help really talented young people find their way to Broadway and off Broadway and there and and to have these careers in the field. And that's been lovely. 
And then March 12th, 2020, all theater in the United States shut down. And I would say, what, Nylon, within two weeks, maybe less, we had to become a completely different organization. We had artists who were alumni of our programs calling us saying, I'm out of my, I have no money and I can't feed my family. Can you help me get groceries? We had, I personally had to intervene with landlords in New York City who were trying to throw our uh, artists in our community out of their apartments, even though it had been made illegal to do so. And most artists in the United States, if you don't work a certain number of hours on union shows, you don't get health coverage. And so many of our early career artists, when all the work was canceled, didn't have health care to begin with. And so they were leaning into free clinics or, or if they lived in a place where they couldn't find the resources or there were no resources, simply trying to struggle through trying to decide if they could afford to go to the emergency room. And so we became a health resource. We became a housing, like all the things I never thought in my life I would have to learn how to do. And what this really left after 18 months are conversations that Nylon and I and our executive director, Bevan Ross, were having that maybe we need to be an advocate for a different kind of system in the American theater. You know, only 2% of actors in the United States make their living as an actor. And so most of them have to have a second or third, or in some cases, fourth or fifth job to pursue the thing that they want to do. In America, the overwhelming majority of, of stage directors live below the poverty line, which is unconscionable in a country of this much wealth and resource. And so... I think the most important conversation we have to have right now is moving from a pr- product-based model that the show is everything that we that we put all the resources into the show because that's into a model where we invest in our artists who actually make the thing that we care for them we take care of their health we take care uh, we pay them adequately to do the work this is going to be a hard decision. This is decades of a system of neglect and scarcity model. And then we're also up against a lot of like, we've romanticized poverty and starvation. Like, you know, this this idea that if if you're not a starving artist, right, is a romantic ideal. The, the idea that if you aren't willing to suffer, you're not good as an all of these, like who thought this stuff up, Anna? It makes no sense. <laughs> Sacrifice for <And>, your art. <laughs> right. Like why, no one says to the stockbroker or the lawyer, sacrifice for your career. Like, like why, <laughs> like we don't do that. So, you know, I think we have to have a conversation and the Drama League recently put out uh, a sweeping reimagination of our programs that we did over two years where we will now be paying a living wage to the people in our fellowships. We will be covering their health care costs. And we hope that will catch on as a conversation because there's just too many people in our community who are suffering. And it's simply a wage disparity gap. It's, it's simply that. And we can make the decisions with our funders, with our really talented executives in the field, with the professionals that we have, to come to a system where artists are more properly resourced and then they can make great work. I don't I don't know how we expect an actor who has already worked a double shift at the restaurant to come to a rehearsal and be a fully formed creative individual. Individual. I don't know how someone who is who is struggling with help with childcare to ha- be fully present in a performance if they don't know what's happening with their children. Like we have to find ways to make the work better. And I think this will, if we can commit to the idea that artists, like every other profession in the world, deserve our respect and to be able to be paid fairly, I think we'll really reap the benefits. The listeners can't see that in this pause, Nylon is just (laughs) smiling at me. I am. I am. I'm I'm deeply (laughs) smiling. I'm deeply smiling because, because, because one, isn't it, isn't it refreshing to be decent? And I hate that I have to say that out loud, but it's quite refreshing to be decent. And we've been talking about wholeness a lot in our work, right? And this is a, this is just another step of wholeness. It's us realizing that we can't demand just the goods from artists, right? 
I, I, I that, that, that pretty or an exciting thing you're going to make. I can't require you to produce that if you don't have a sustainable life behind you. And it's more than just a catch on. I love, I love Gabriel saying, I hope it catch on. I hope the field feels accountable. I hope they look at their own resources and they look at what they're doing and they go, hold up. We have to do better. That's what I hope happens. I hope it's a, a bunch of people realizing I can no longer just give soup out. <laughs> right? I can't, I can't just feed you the, that, that, that just this bowl and this liquid anymore. I need to figure out how to really make a sustainable life for you. Because that's where we're going to get the best thoughts at. I love the, the, the picture that you just made, Gabriel, of um, how can someone give their best performance if they're worried about their kid at home. Um, and that that imagery um, is like flooding, and and it hurts my heart because they they, God, childcare has been a huge factor um, in the theater. So many artists who say I'm not going to have kids because I have to stop working. I can't do this thing anymore. Or a bunch of artists who have kids and they never come back to the art. Or those, or some people who have kids and and at some capacity they can no longer they can start supporting artists as like admin work, but they can be artists themselves. And those small few who who are trying, who are surviving, who are struggling. I shouldn't say surviving; they're getting by, right? And it shouldn't be. We shouldn't have those types of stories anymore. I, I need. We need. We must. Again, you also said the glorifying of the artist's journey. Why are there so many movies about poor artists and look at, and then they make it to the Lincoln Center for <laughs> in the movie, and we all go, "Yay!" Um, like we don't need any more of those. But we don't see that about any other profession in the world. Like those movies start with them graduating <laughs> from college and going out into the world. Yes, but I, uh, you know, Nyland, I, I really want to take a moment to celebrate the people who are catching a lot right now, which is the administrators and the leaders inside theater institutions, especially because the upcoming generation, I think, believes what is by and large a myth that these theaters are sitting on piles of money, like a dragon on top of the golden horde, and they're and they're not giving it to artists. And if they would just share it. And and you know, that may be true for like the 10 biggest theaters in America. You know, I I don't know. I'm I I I don't work at those theaters. But for the <laughs> but for the other 2,000 theaters in America, it simply isn't true. They are working with finite resources and trying to do the best they can. And so this is hard to figure out how to pay people more responsibly. It may mean that you do less shows. It may mean that you have a different relationship to artists and community and, and all of that. It definitely requires, to Anna's point, different funding, uh, which they are responsible for, for like cultivating. And that will take many years and decades to solve. So I just also want to say that while we're arguing for a fairer place for our artists who are at the center of our model, I just want to celebrate the people who are doing that work, who often I think are being unfairly blamed for the problem. The problems are systemic. The problems are political. The problems are global. The people trying to solve it are our allies in this conversation. No one who works, I've never met anyone who works on an administrative staff of a theater who doesn't want the best for the artists. But, you know, Nylon and I will tell you, we sit at the drama league and we see the budgets and like, it's tight, you know, like the pandemic was rough, you know? So it, like, it is a very complicated conversation. And I just want to celebrate that those people by and large are, on the side of the angels. And I think they will come to this nylon. I think they will come to this government. Yes, we want to do better by the artists. Now we have to figure out how, you know, and for smaller theaters, that's a different conversation than as nylon says, Lincoln center or the Broadway shows, or, you know, like there's a, there's a resource allocation conversation. That's going to be very complicated. There's also a conversation about, especially when you look at regional theaters, that all communities aren't the same. Not all communities need the same thing. And we have to stop blanket state stapling the American theater as as especially being in New York. And I love you, New York. <laughs> but we but we throw the cast of the blanket across the rest of the country as if like uh, <laughs> we're the epicenter. And all communities are different and we have to start celebrating 
and and realizing what those needs are so that when those changes are happening, we can uplift them and realize Pittsburgh needs this and realize uh, Milwaukee needs this or San Diego needs this. It's a lot of work and it's going to be slow and steady because exactly what Gabriel said, the pandemic happened, right? Money's tight all around and we got to be able to give that, uh, we got to give that conscious, conscious patience and, and support to these people during this time. Uh, it's yeah, it, it feels like a mountain when you when you summarize it like that. Um, there's there's one but, more thing, but that, not in, but not sorry, impossible. No, but not, yeah, not impossible. impossible. No, no, no. Agree. It's, it, it's it a mountain, but we can the, climb it. Commit committed people to. I think what my my desire to see and watch from afar is that people stay committed out of all that they've discovered through the pandemic. It's like right, we know what we need to fix. Now let's not forget those lessons. Let's go back into. <laughs> Our arts with having a bit, had a bit of a rest, having more time with my kids, having having and seen what life could be like on in another structure, and let's let's implement that. I think that's fascinating. There was one other thing that I know you've got some initiatives that we should talk about um, that's happening in the drama league, and we want to hear about that. But there's one more thing that I wanted to bring up because we did mention it last time we spoke, and that was the the need to talk about and address because it is another hot topic right now climate change and how we in the arts should not be ignoring that that's happening and then how do we is it are we are we going to put shows on about it what 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 are your thoughts on that well you know i <laughs> i you know 3000 years ago there was this guy named aristotle who said that we should think of theater as a place of civic discourse it's a place where the ideas and the conversations can happen by an entire society. So I do think in some level, artists have a responsibility to engage with this, with climate change. It feels pressing. It feels urgent. It feels like something our fellow citizens need us to create space for. And there are many really great artists. I, you know, I think about the, the companies that are dedicated to these issues, Superhero Clubhouse in New York. And there's some really wonderful companies out there. But every company needs to do it. I'll also say that the way we resource theater has to lead the field. You know, we have to think about sustainable models, not only for our artists, but for our planet. And so figuring out how we look at rehearsal spaces, how we look at our buildings, how we look at performing in nature. There's so many companies that work outside who had to cancel half their shows this summer because of floods and hurricanes and, you know, what happened to the outdoor theaters in Northern California with the forest fires is just unbelievably tragic. One of the biggest theaters in America, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, before the pandemic uh, had to deal with shutting down because of smoke and forest fires near them. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, it. so I think we're going to, um, just like the rest of society, if we decide to ignore this, Mother Nature will make sure we pay for it. Um, <laughs> we we have to bring this into our conversations, not only into our art, but into the way we work. Mm. I, I would like to bring up that it's not only we talk about it, but the way we act about it. And you talk about the buildings, but uh, from the technical point of of things, the amount of things we waste it disgusts me it is and trying to raise that conversation among the technical people it's so hard because it's like and it goes back to the same kind of conversation where talking about wages and you know trying to be humans it, trying to take care of the, the environment oh but theater doesn't work like that or how are we gonna make it or how can we afford it or how can it's like i don't know we're just not gonna be doing theater if we keep doing it like this well, we've got, and, you know, again, I just want to say it's not happening everywhere, but I'm loving some of the conversations among our scenic designers about sustainable design so that, so that things are being made of materials that can be recycled or repurposed into future sets that we aren't, you know, there's some lovely conversations happening in that space. There's some conversations about building redesign, you know, that the pandemic caused, frankly, because we had to look at our filtration systems, you know, on Broadway, we have theaters that are over 100 years old, no one ever thought about the air filtration in the way that we need to now. So how do we make those changes? How do we get 
the uh, funders of our work to say, oh, these are priorities, that we can create buildings that are greener, that we can create productions that are greener, that we can change our model to be kinder to our planet. Nylon just brought up the primacy of New York City, and, and we were both residents of New York City. We love New York City, but we think it's a dangerous thought that theaters in Iowa and Montana will come to New York to do their auditions when they may have wonderful local actors who can be housed more sustainably. You know, how we look at our own local communities could be something that we could move to that I think could be really healthy. I'm going to take, someone's going to hear that and I'm going to take crap for it. But I, but I think that there is, this is a conversation that could be had in a very wide way. We were going to raise the same flag about waste. Um, and so I'm excited that you said that. And, I, and what I want to say that I want to celebrate is that I'm watching technical directors and, and, and designers, especially the people who have to do strikes, realize why are we why do we do it like this? They're starting like um they're they're realizing at large and starting to really sound um all the alarms of like if we're just gonna buy this again next season, why are we throwing it away? <laughs> um, or um when they do the build, it's like uh, intentionally. I, I have a couple of friends who are technical directors who are like we screw this in this way because we know we can take it out and we can rescrew it, right? Or we know that um, we use this paint because it's easier to prime it again to paint it over. Or I'm watching a lot of designers, their first stops are thrift stores before they go to a larger store, right? I mean, there's, and that also is just going to take time too because a the theater can only give a certain amount of its resources over to um, a certain project at a time. And I'm watching it, but I am watching it um, slow and steady. I'm watching um, the the mass paper waste we do with programs, oh my gosh, that just litter the ground when you leave the theater. <laughs> it's it's so sad after you like go to a show. Oh, I enjoyed it, and then you just look down and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> just dead pieces of paper flying everywhere. And I'm watching them make a lot of more digital programs. People are really wrestling with this question. And I will say there's more work that needs to be done in this area at large when it comes to climate change. And I and, and I do think it's more of um, what can we put on our stages that allows language to slip into our audience's mouth so that they can advocate for this type of law to be voted on so they know how to talk with their law officials. It, I still think climate change is such a uh, an elite topic where people just don't know what's happening, like what is actually happening in their environment. It's, it goes unseen until it's seen. And there's so many steps in between that that we as artists can help shine light on, bring attention to. And maybe that's what we need to do a little bit more of. I've got a solution for the paper. You make all the opening night programs uh, a selected number of NFTs and you sell them as the opening night program and then you make money for the theatre. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. I love that. Sell them opening night NFT programs, man. Uh, this, uh, this NFT thing is fascinating to me and I feel like how can the arts profit from this because we're the ones that are creating all the content, right? There's got to be ways to generate money through those ways. And I think technology not actually necessarily on stage, but in facets like that can be ways to uh, generate money. It's good. Do you mind if I steal that from you, Anna? I'm going to tell people that. I think it's you a great idea. Steal it. It's yeah. good. It's good. Yeah. I think it's and I, you know, a, a mutual friend of this podcast, Bonnie Comley, who is the president of the Drum League Board, is uh, also runs a company called Broadway HD and has really talked a lot about these kinds of initiatives, Anna, to have... Uh, to create new revenue streams. We learned in the pandemic that theater being streamed online could really help theaters that are in a lot of trouble. So I hope our unions can figure out how to keep that work going. I don't know how we figure out an opening night NFT, but I think it it seemed in my limited capacity, it seems like something we could do now, like today, and remove the idea. And that plus QR code, you know, here in New York, I don't know how it is where you are, but here in New York, there's not a restaurant with a paper menu. Like it's all QR codes that oh, you scan on your phone. Oh, they own QR codes, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and and there's no reason we couldn't do that with with paper playbills as well. So mm. um, I'm going to steal that. I, I'll credit you, but I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I'm sure other people are thinking it too, but it's it, it's a good way to do it. So tell us what's um what's happening with the drama league now. You've got a few new things happening right now that are interesting. You want to share with us? Yeah, well, uh, so it started a little bit before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic, there were a lot of calls around the issues we talked about today, about how our industry can get fairer and more equitable and less racist and more human-centered. And so we went into a process looking at our programs, which have won, you know, tons of awards. They're, they're renowned for what they are. We're very proud of them, but they were, are 40 years old. They began in 1982 and really hadn't had a wholesale investigation. And the moment, you know, I am, I am in my 50s, it was a very different world when I was an early career artist coming up than it is today. It's much harder today, I think. And so we interviewed about 150 people, not just directors, producers, artistic leaders, casting agents, all kinds of people, and really learned three things. One is that artists are going to need longer periods of support and more robust support. Uh, and that's some of the things we talked about. How do we create a more sustainable model for being an artist? The second thing we realized is that the damage of the COVID-19 pandemic was not going to end with the pandemic, that this is going to actually have lingering damage for probably a decade on artists. And so we knew our programs needed to recognize that there's going to be ongoing difficulty. And then the third thing is we know that there are a limited number of people who are able to even participate in the arts. And so we know for our programs, which support artists, that we needed to create new avenues of support, ways to, that they can interface with the field over a long time. So that's a long way to say that we overhauled everything. And so we have new fellowship programs, new residency programs, new assistantship programs, and a slate of continuing education, because being an artist means you are always learning for the artists that we serve. And we radically increased the money. Uh, our major fellowship, the Drama League Stage Director Fellowship, offers $100,000 to the fellow over two years. We cover their healthcare costs. And then we are partnering with uh, seven institutions, including Manhattan Theater Club, McCarter Theater Center, Theater Works USA, The Hangar, New York Stage and Film, Red Bull Theater, and TCG to create a multi-year slate of one-of-a-kind, once-in-a-lifetime interactions with the field. So they get directing opportunities, they get developmental opportunities, they go to networking conferences and events, they are given training moments to grow their artistry and creativity. It's a really exciting slate of stuff. I encourage everyone to go to dramaleague.org and check it out. And if there are stage directors, it is open to people around the world. And you can apply at dramaleague.org. But we're really excited about it. We think this is, uh, as Nyland said, it feels really good to be decent and to be doing doing the thing that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. What an amazing initiative. Nyland, you got anything to add? What I will say I'll add is that we're I this entire rework also we're we're trying to up the the percentage that you get embedded into the field. There there's a lot. There's been a history here in the American theater of doing these fellowships across America and they just become a um a notch on the belt instead of becoming a uh, a foundation for you to stand on and practice with with your 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 colleagues and your fellow collaborators this that type of embedding is is very hard to find is very hard to do organically um, as an artist working i can say for myself as an artist working in this business and the strategic and purposeful crafting that we've done at the drama league we're trying to make sure at every turn you're creating a human connection with the people we're putting you in front of and maybe this day will be the thing that clicks a light bulb and they realize being, you are integral to our process. You're integral to this theatrical home. We must have you. And that's what an artist needs. That's what an artist wants. They want a home. And we're trying to give numerous chances <laughs> um, in the program to make that theatrical home. 
I think that's amazing. And uh, just just your work and your philosophies are just, just wonderful, both of you. And thank you so much for spending time with us today to fill us in on everything that you are doing in the Drama League. And um, we'll for sure put that link in, in the uh, description so that everybody can uh, find out more about you. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks to you too. This was wonderful. I just also want to just thank the Drama League at large. We're not doing this alone. I know we sound like lovely speakheads right now, um, but we have a staff and a team that are helping us raise this money, helping us uh, care and nurture these artists, um, and really are helping getting the word out. And it takes it takes the village, right? And we have an incredible village. It takes a village. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Theatre at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theatreartlife.com.